Good, good morning. Thanks for being here today. Um, I know we say this every single week, but I, I just genuinely mean it. We are so thrilled as a church that you decided to join us this morning, carve out some of your time. Uh, maybe it's because we have air conditioning and you don't. Don't care what the reason is, just glad that you are here, glad that we get to experience and do this thing together. So thank you for making the effort to be here. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online as well. Glad you're tuned in. And if you are watching because you are out of town on the weekends but live close enough to actually attend in person, then I just want to let you know about our Wednesday night services all summer long. We have an exact copy of what happens on Sunday available on Wednesday night. That goes for the rest of us too if, if you have to be out of town for the weekend. Uh, every single Wednesday at 6.30 is another one of these services just like what we experience here but also with the addition of food trucks and yard games and just tons of fun that we have from 4 to 6 p.m. before service as well. So this week uh, we have a waffle truck coming up with like more than just dessert waffles. We got like burger waffles and all sorts of different stuff. So I'm very excited for that. Even if you don't choose to come to service, hope you come and hang out on Wednesday night with us for that. So anyway, just keep that in mind. Now, today we are continuing a series we started last week called Survival Guide for the Soul. And if it's your first time with us, or maybe you were gone last week, whatever it is, you can catch the first part of this series on our YouTube channel. You can uh, kind of get caught up with us there. But kind of the premise of this series is taking survival-based principles for the physical world, you know, out in the wild, and then applying those same ideas to our spiritual side of things as well. You know, how do we how do we outlast some of the emotional challenges that we face? How do we survive on the inside? We come up not against no food or shelter, but against some of these troubles and and struggles that we all experience in life. And that's that's really what we're doing every single week. What's a survival principle and how does it apply to us internally and even in our relationship with God? Now, um, two years ago, I went for the first time to Namaji State Park here in Minnesota, and it was the first year that I had um, my razor, and so I went up with my oldest daughter, Audrey, and then we went riding with, this is Chad, he's one of our drummers here at church, and his middle son, Dakota, and we went up to uh, to Nemaji. Now, if you don't know about Nemaji, it's about an hour and a half north of here, uh, just a little northeast of Sandstone. It is almost 93,000 acres of pure wilderness, okay? There's just more trees than you can possibly imagine there's there's hiking trails and horseback trails if you like to take things slow but we went up to go fast okay and so we're we're riding on the atv trails there are over 120 miles of atv trails up in namaji and so we start off the day you know just kind of you know tooling around on the big wide trails where everybody else is you know seeing a little bit of hills and some grassland and stuff but about midway through the, the, the day, we decide we're going to hit the class one trails. Now, class one trails, if you're not familiar, are meant for small ATVs. Uh, my Razor barely fits, okay? It's technically a class one, but I mean, there were spots we were driving through through trees where I had less than an inch on either side of clearance to be able to make it. And let me tell you, these trails are so stinking fun, okay? They are awesome. There's twisties and, you know, little bridges you got to cross and obviously tons of mud puddles to ride through and I had to wash the razor for two weeks to get everything off and you know all sorts of these these different things but but again more than anything else when you're riding through Nemaji all you see is trees 
And I'm not like an outdoorsy type of person. You know, I could get lost in nine acres of wilderness, let alone 90,000. But we're riding through and like, I don't see very many trail markers or signs. I have no idea where we are. There's not really any elevation to get above the trees and kind of, you know, get your bearings. But we're riding in Namaji all day. I have no clue how far away, you know, we are from where we parked. But, but yet inside, I was never once worried about, are we going to make it? Are we going to survive? Or am I going to be trapped in the wilderness forever? And the reason I wasn't scared or nervous was because of an app on my phone called Avenza Maps. Now, this is not a sponsored ad read, okay? But Avenza, if you're watching, I won't turn it down. So um, Avenza Maps is this app you put on your phone and you can download these types of files called GeoPDFs, maps of different state parks and forests and all that sort of stuff. And when you open up the map inside of this app, you show up as a little blue dot no matter where you are. And I'm telling you, I don't know what sort of like technological sorcery happens with this, but it is so precise, even with no cell phone signal, okay? The whole day I was up there, I could not make calls. It just said SOS at the top of my phone. No service at all. And yet, when we would cross a stream, look on the map, and sure enough, we're crossing a stream. When we'd come up to like a, a fork in the trail, you know there's five or six different options, I could look and say, okay, let's go this way or let's go this way. Never once was I worried about where we were or how we were going to get out more land than I've you know, possibly ever seen in my life. But yet, this right here made all the difference in the world. I was able to make it through because I used the map. And spiritually speaking, we have a map as well. It's called the Bible. This right here is a map that we can use for almost anything we will ever face in life. How to get directions, how to get instructions, how to make our way out of wherever we find ourselves. In fact, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes this about the Bible or Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. And is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And inside of this inspired book, there are, there are things, you know, hey, don't lie to your neighbor. Forgive one another. Pray on all occasions. Be patient in suffering. Trust Jesus, all sorts of spiritual directions for our spiritual lives. And the Bible is such an amazing tool that we have at our disposal. We can read the Bible for information. There, is, there, are, there are things in here that we could not possibly know any other way. Information about God and his character and his heart for us and his will for this world. There's true things that we can learn. But there's also things that we can learn about what's not true as well. We live in a culture today that, as I'm sure all of us know, is constantly changing and constantly redefining words. And, and in our postmodern world, it seems like kind of the, the pinnacle of existence is my truth. You know, whatever I say goes and however I want to live goes. And our world absolutely pushes against absolutes. But yet we believe that this book contains absolutely true information, right and wrong for us and for our world. So we can read it for information. 
This map that we have is good for inspiration as well. That as you read through the pages and, and look through you know, stories of believers from thousands of years ago or the words of Jesus or the writings of, of, of maybe Luke or Paul or Peter, man, it, these words can touch our hearts, can speak, if you will, to our minds in ways that very few other things can. God uses this to give us hope to give us strength. He can encourage us inside with, with this map. And more than anything else, not only just information and inspiration, but this, this Bible, this map, is such an incredible tool for transformation. That when we use this to grow in our relationship with God, the instructions in here about how to handle our money, how to handle our relationships with one another, how to raise our kids better, how to be a part of what God is doing in this world, how to make our lives count. These, this information and inspiration can actually lead to transformation on the inside. That as we use this map to guide ourselves and navigate closer in a relationship with God, we become more like him. He does a work in us through his word. In the book of Hebrews, we read that the word of God is alive and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, that it can, it can pierce and penetrate right to the very core of who we are. And this, this thing, the Bible, it's not the goal of Christianity. It's not the pinnacle of our faith. We talked about this a few weeks ago during our Lies I Learned in Church series. But this, this Bible, I think, is the single most reliable map we have to lead us to the goal, which is to grow in our own relationship with God. But here's, here's the thing about the Bible. 85% of Americans own a Bible. The average amount of Bibles per home is four. There are over 20 million Bibles sold every single year. Uh, nobody knows exactly what the number is, but the Guinness Book of World Records puts the amount of Bibles printed in history at around 5 to 7 billion with a B. That is a massive, massive number that we can't even comprehend. The Bible has been translated into over 700 different languages completely, while the New Testament alone has been translated into over 1,600 languages. I mean, it is the world's bestseller, and there is not even a close second. It is, in, is totally in a league of its own. But yet, for all those statistics and numbers about how amazing the Bible is, or at least how amazing our world thinks it is, only 10% of Americans read the Bible on a daily basis. And that number is dropping sharply. Just in the last two years alone, research shows that 26 million Americans have stopped reading the Bible as a result of COVID-19 and declining church attendance. 20% of Americans surveyed said that they don't believe this is absolute truth. In fact, 30% of Americans think that this is full of myth. And I don't know about you, but those numbers are alarming to me. Here, here at Access, if you're newer here, or maybe it's your first time, you got to know that we, we believe this is the inspired, infallible word of God, that it was not God who literally reached down from heaven and wrote on the papyrus that, you know, it was originally wrote, written on, but we believe that God inspired men to write down his words and his heart. And yet 
that view that we have that this is this is the ultimate source of authority when it comes to faith and morality and life, this view that we have of the Bible, less and less of us have all the time. More people are walking away from the truth contained in this book than ever before. And, and with the rise of the whole deconstruction movement and people walking away from their faith and the fact that anybody can post anything on the internet, whether it's true or not, and, and the rise of kind of agnostic and atheistic intellectuals, it seems like the Bible is under more attack than it has been in quite some time. And maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online and you have questions about the Bible too. Maybe you've never voiced them before, but you wonder inside, is it really true? Can we really count on it? Is it, is it just made up stories or is there something more to it? I think many people in our world have those types of questions today. And even if you don't have those questions, I think a lot of us are underprepared to defend the Bible if we were ever to get into a conversation or even a debate about why we believe it's the Word of God. And so what we're going to do today is quite a big departure from what we normally do at our services. Um, this is definitely going to be much more of a lecture than anything else. So if, if it's your first time here, try us out again, see what it's normally like. But um. Kevin said you'd be interested, but maybe not entertained. So um, here, here's what I want to do. I want to spend the next, the rest of our time together, not reading through the Bible, but talking about when we read the Bible, why we can trust what it says. And here's my ultimate goal for every single one of us today, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've grown up in the church your whole life or not. My goal is that every single one of us would walk away or, or leave this video having more trust in what this says than we did when we came in. If you already believe that this is the word of God, I hope that your, your trust in, in its reliability grows. Maybe you're at a minus 500, you know, you don't believe it at all. My goal is you'd move to a minus 499, you know, or a minus 495. Just can, can we walk away from here? My goal is that we have a little more faith or trust in the reliability of the Bible. Now, um, there's some foundation level stuff that we got to cover right away about the Bible. This is not a book in the sense of a normal sort of book. This is actually a collection of 66 different books written by over 40 different authors, um, written over a time period of about 1,500 years. It was written in three original languages in Hebrew. That's most of the Old Testament. In Aramaic, which was kind of the conversational language when Jesus was here on earth, as well as Greek, which is primarily the New Testament. So three different languages written on three different continents. And in this book, you will find all sorts of different literary genres. There's historical narrative in here. There's legal type of, of literature in here. There's poetry. There's prophecy. There's church instructions. There's biography. All sorts of different things. You, this is not a book that you read like a normal one where you just start on page one and work through it until you reach the end. And inside, I think, every single Bible that's printed today, it's broken up into two major sections. Now, this is just my personal opinion. I think three sections would be more accurate and help us understand how to read it better. But there is the Old Testament. That's uh, the first about two-thirds. The Old Testament is everything from Genesis to Malachi, and all of this primarily speaks to God's 
relationship agreement with people before Jesus. So it's called the Old um, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement. Those are all sort of synonyms. Then there are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are four biographies about the life of Jesus, what he did, where he went, what he taught. Um, those are different accounts of who Jesus was. And three of the Gospels are very similar. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic as in synonym, meaning same. They contain almost all the same information, same kind of viewpoint. Whereas the Gospel of John is quite different. It's written from a completely different perspective. All true, but just helping to paint us a better picture of who Jesus is. And in reading the Gospels, you see Jesus establishing a new system, a new agreement between God and people while still under the old system. So that's the Gospels. And then from Acts through Revelation, I think would be more appropriate to call the New Testament. And the New Testament is all about God's relationship agreement or covenant with people in light of Jesus. And so it's, it's all of it is equally inspired. We believe all of this is equally true. But here's the thing about reading the Bible. Not all of it is equally applicable to our lives. Do you, do you understand the difference? All true, all inspired, but not all equally applicable. Especially when you look at the Old Testament, there are rules and regulations about food and clothing and ceremonies and sacrifices that just aren't for us, you know? They were written thousands of years ago for a different people group, for the, for the nation of Israel, for a specific time period, not for us anymore. And I'm amazed, you know, Many times if, if you hear non-Christians kind of argue against the Bible, they're picking from Old Testament verses that have nothing to do with us anymore. Yes, they're true. Yes, that's how God worked. That was the way. But now we live under a different system. And I am shocked by how many messages I watch and other pastors I listen to and even Christian books that do not understand the difference between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement, and the new agreement that God has given us because of what Jesus has done. And any time that we are going to read the map, we need to be aware of what part of the map we're reading and how it applies to us. Now, it's just some foundational stuff about the book, but when it comes to the reliability of the Bible, there are really kind of three big questions that rise to the top over and over again. You'll find almost every argument has to do with, with one of these three things. And we're not going to fully answer every question today, but I do want to walk through at least some of the answers. Again, to help us have more trust that, that this Bible is a reliable map that we can use. And the first question that comes up all the time is this. How did we get the Bible? Maybe this is news to you, but it did not just come out of heaven leather bound and assorted like we have it today. That's not how it worked. There is a, there's a process called the canonization of Scripture. And the canonization process is basically determining what makes the cut and what didn't cut. And so all of these 66 letters and documents and histories and biographies, these are what's known as the canon of Scripture, kind of the set standard of what it is. 
Now, with the Old Testament, the canon of Scripture was determined by the Jewish people. The 39 books in the Old Testament actually form the entirety of Hebrew Scripture. Uh, those, those books, those letters, those prophecies would have been written down over a course of about a thousand years or more. But Jewish scribes in the ancient world were incredibly gifted at copying text. They took their role seriously. They, they had so many different measures in place to ensure that what they copied was accurate and true and without error. They counted almost everything you could, you could possibly count. How many words are in this document? How many letters are in this document? What's the middle word? What's the middle letter? I mean, it was almost at a level of like superstition sort of thing. They weren't, but like they regarded their texts, their religious texts in such high esteem. They took painstaking detail to make sure it was copied faithfully. In fact, they were so faithful in copying that they didn't worry about keeping old versions of the manuscript. It was accurate from time to time to time. And any time an old manuscript was worn or if it was found to have an error, they would discard it. It was unworthy and they would either bury it or burn it and it would cease to exist. And over the course of several hundreds of years, Jewish scholars and leaders and religious teachers worked through their own process to determine what was true scripture and what wasn't. And so by the time we see Jesus step onto the scene, we see Jesus basically affirming the Old Testament as it is today. He would quote from the Old Testament in his teachings as if these were true things, because that's what we believe it is. He would reference stories and historical accounts like Adam and Eve and the flood as if they were real events, because that's what we believe, that these things really did happen. And other New Testament writers viewed the Old Testament in the exact same sort of way. And so we, we believe in the, the correctness, the authenticity of the Old Testament, mainly for two reasons, because Christianity was birthed out of Judaism and because of the way New Testament authors treat the Old Testament. Now, there are several uh, other books that don't make it into the Old Testament, at least in our version of the Bible. In the Catholic Bible, there are seven additional books known as the Apocrypha. And even outside of the Catholic Bible, there are other writings, things that, that didn't make it in there. But, but here's the thing. In Judaism, Old Testament prophets and writings from God ceased about the year 400 B.C., and all of these apocryphal texts or extra texts weren't written until 200 BC and later. And in fact, it wasn't until the mid 1500s that the Roman Catholic Church kind of put their official stamp of approval on the apocrypha saying, oh, yeah, we, we affirm this is scripture. But here's the thing. The people that these texts were originally written to, the Jewish people, had already dismissed them. They were written to them and they said, no, this doesn't count. And so that's why we believe they don't belong in the Bible. They are not inspired, infallible word of God, scripture. When it comes to the New Testament, uh, the process of canonization was comparatively much shorter than the Old Testament. Most writings we have from the ancient world have about a thousand year span 
between when an event happened and when it was written about. That's a pretty long time. In fact, outside of the Bible, the shortest time span we can find is about 500 years. But the New Testament is completely different. Everybody agrees that all of the documents and letters that ended up in the New Testament were written anywhere from about 45 to 50 AD to about the mid-90s AD, or basically within just a couple decades of Jesus actually walking on the earth. And there is no other text from the ancient world that even comes close to the proximity of the event that the New Testament does. Um, These letters and biographies would have been written at a time when eyewitnesses were still alive to refute them had they been wrong. And early Christians from all over the Mediterranean and Middle East, they had this kind of this organic set of guidelines that rose up. Nobody, you know, wrote these down and said, oh, this has to be it. But they just kind of rose up these set of guidelines to determine if a letter they got or a document they found was actually scripture or not. First, it had to be written by an apostle or somebody who who saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, written by an apostle or had a direct connection to an apostle, you know, could have interviewed them sort of thing. Uh, Every single letter, if it was going to be considered canon, had to contain orthodox truth about God. You know, it couldn't have some new wild sort of theory or something. It had to be grounded in truth that they, they already knew and had established. All New Testament documents, in order to be accepted as scripture, had to have evidence of transforming power to the original audience. When, when, when people looked at these letters, they had to see, man, people responded and God worked in their lives as a result of reading. And then finally, nothing could make it as official scripture if it hadn't already been widely accepted by Christians at large. And, and here's the thing I think we we misunderstand about how the Bible came about, especially in regards to the New Testament. There was no one person picking out this makes it and this doesn't. There was no one group picking out this is true and this is false. There was not some sort of political, you know, coalition or caucus or anything like that. Now, other religious texts in our world have been assembled that way, but the Bible did not happen like that, especially with the New Testament. I was reading an article earlier this week and this the, the, the author wrote this line, the Bible, the New Testament is not an authorized collection of writings. Rather, it is a collection of authorized writings. That's, they, they sound very similar at the front, but it's not like somebody put a stamp of approval on the 27 letters in the New Testament saying, yep, this is true. It was a process of all Christians in that time organically when there was no internet, no easy travel, no easy communication. These 27 books just rose to the top time and time again. It was a collection of people saying, oh, we believe these books already have the stamp of approval from God. The New Testament scriptures were not established as much as they were recognized by Christianity at large. I think sometimes what what can help for us to understand this is is like when you think of novels, you know, there's some novels or literature, it's just known as the classics, right? Anything from Shakespeare, George Orwell, or Tolkien, or, you know, Moby Dick, they get this label, oh, this is classic literature. 
Well, there's not like one person sitting in a room somewhere being like classic, classic, loser, classic. You know, that doesn't happen. It happens as a result of culture that these things just rise up and we recognize them. And it was the same sort of thing that happened with the New Testament. Within the first hundred years of Christianity, the basic foundational elements of Christian doctrine were already well established that Jesus was fully God and fully human. He lived on this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose again. He offers forgiveness for us. I mean, that stuff was not up for debate. These 27 letters and documents would have already been copied many times and in full circulation. In fact, by the mid to late 100s, we see that every single New Testament letter had already been cited in other writing. And at the Council of Hippo in 393, there was a formal list put together. Not as like, thus saith the Council of Hippo, but like, we all agree, these are the 27 books that make it into the New Testament. Now, much like with the Apocrypha in the Old Testament, there have been suggestions about maybe missed books or additional books that we should add to the New Testament, things like the Gospel of Thomas. That's probably the most famous. Maybe you've heard that before. There's also the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, all sorts of other different things. But, but here's the thing about these books, and there's very good reasons why they're not included. Number one, those were all written in the second century or later, so they had no apostolic connection, nobody who was directly connected to Jesus. Um, they're just weird, honestly. I mean, if you read any of these extra books, not only do they not fit context-wise, but they don't even fit stylistically. And never once has Christianity accepted these extra books as being true scripture. And when you, when you study the process of canonization, how we got the Bible as it is today, and I think there is more than enough evidence to show that God was working that he inspired men to write his words and also worked through people to, to pick out the stuff that fit and belonged and to get rid of the stuff that didn't. So that's that. How did we get the Bible through the process of canonization? The second question, and probably the one that I hear most kind of um, arguing against today, is this. Has it changed over time? I mean, let's face it, the Bible was written a long time ago by a lot of different authors. How do we know that what we have right now is actually what it said long ago? And has it changed? This one is honestly very easy to answer. No, it hasn't changed. And the reason we know this is because the huge amount of manuscript evidence we have in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, uh, we have manuscripts from the 900s, things like the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex. They're just big fancy terms for old manuscripts. Those were assembled around the year 900 AD. But in the 1940s with the, uh, the find of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have manuscripts that are a thousand years older than that. And when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and those different codex, you know, writings, texts, and when you look at the Old Testament today, you see an over 95% accuracy between them all. I mean, it is absolutely astounding that the Old Testament says what it says, which is what it has always said. We have over 10,000 copies of manuscripts, either in full or in part for the Old Testament, to prove the Old Testament hasn't changed. When you look at the New Testament, there's even more evidence than that. 
There's about 5,800 manuscripts just in Greek, which is the original language, as well as over 19,000 manuscripts in other languages. And just, just to kind of give you a point of reference for how many that is, outside of the New Testament, the most manuscripts we have for anything else in the ancient world, New Testament is about 25,000. The next closest is 650 for Homer's The Iliad. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have about 10 copies of that. I mean, nothing even comes close. We're talking about ancient text to the evidence we have supporting the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there are two major discrepancies that we have discovered, and uh, nobody tries to hide it. I think it's one of the things that gives the New Testament such credibility that Christianity is not trying to do some mass cover-up or, you know, conspiracy sort of thing. There are two parts in the New Testament that are clearly labeled. One of them is the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's called the longer ending of Mark. It's verse 9 through verse 20. All of the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have that longer ending. And when you look in your Bible, you'll see that's clearly defined and separated out. The other spot is in John's Gospel, John chapter 8 with a woman caught in adultery. Same sort of thing. It's clearly labeled, clearly marked. All of the oldest manuscripts don't have that section of John chapter 8 in it. And most scholars and theologians and historians, most of them all agree, those are not original. Okay, We do not believe that those are the inspired, infallible word of God. But here's the thing about both of those. They have nothing to do with Christian theology or doctrine. They don't change the story of Christianity. They don't change our belief. Whether they're real or not does not make one bit of difference on what we believe about Jesus, his return, eternity, how to be right with God, none of that sort of thing. And in fact, all of the other discrepancies, the New Testament has an over 98% accuracy when you look at ancient manuscripts. Any of the other discrepancies are spelling mistakes slips of the pen, forgot a punctuation mark. I know it's very common today to hear, oh, did you know the, the Bible has over 400,000 errors in it? That is such a misleading way to say things, it's almost a lie. Because the way they count to get 400,000, if there is a misspelled word in 100,000 copies, that's not one error. That's 100,000 errors. Like, come on, man, we got to be more honest with ourselves than that. And like, Nothing of any of those other miniature, minute discrepancies, again, has anything to do with doctrine or theology or ideology. The, the manuscripts we have, what God has preserved for us, goes to show without a doubt that what was originally written has been faithfully transmitted to us thousands of years later. We don't need to worry about has it changed over time because it's clear it hasn't. Now, the final question is the most important, and it is the question that everything hinges upon. Is it true? Is the Bible true? Now, I think when you look at, again, the texts and the manuscripts and the evidence, we see that there's plenty of that to support that it is. When you look at some of these ancient writings, there are details in there that no one could have known about. Things like 
names and geography and weather patterns and political rulers and even ancient civilizations that scientists at one time thought the Bible made up. Oh, no, turns out the writers actually knew what they were talking about. Plenty of evidence to support that it's true. As I said before, especially with the New Testament, they were written at a time when eyewitnesses would have still been alive and they would have refuted them if they were wrong. The fact that early Christians went to the grave just for possessing scripture, I think stands to its credibility and, and the fact that we can trust it. And, and when you look at all of the evidence and all of the things out there and all the other options we have to choose from, to me anyway, it just seems to make logical sense that yes, the Bible is true. But here's the thing, that is a decision that every single one of us, everybody watching online, that we need to make for ourselves. Every single one of us need to decide, is this something that I can believe in? Is this true or not? Because regardless of evidence, regardless of manuscripts, regardless of history, that's still a decision that we need to personally make. And with every decision, there is some level of faith involved. Science can't prove everything. There has to come to a point where we just decide, am I going to believe that or not? Now, I'm not talking about blind faith. I'm not talking about uninformed faith but faith nonetheless. And that's why for me, I always come back to Jesus. Jesus is the point of it all, the foundation of it all, the, the central figure of our faith. And I wish I could say I came up with this myself. I can't. But I just think this. This is anytime I have questions or doubts or worries, I land back at the same point. If someone predicts their own death and resurrection and then actually pulls it off, I just go with what they say. You know what? I'm a pretty simple guy. Evidence is cool. Numbers are cool. But like, ultimately, that's cooler. You know, like, I'm just, I'm just going to go with that. If you say you're going to die and come back to life and then actually do, that's enough evidence for me. And that's why I think Jesus is the thing that every one of us ought to hinge our decision on. Can we trust Jesus? Because there is more historical evidence, manuscript evidence, any sort of evidence from the ancient world for a Jewish carpenter who was born, lived, died, and raised again named Jesus than anybody else in the ancient world. More evidence to support that, and it's not even close. And so that leaves us with really two options. We can reject the evidence and say, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible is true. Uh, my personal opinion is if we're going to go that route in order to be intellectually consistent, we need to also throw away everything else from the ancient world because evidence can't be trusted. Or we can say maybe as much as it's uncomfortable and as much as I don't understand it and maybe I still have questions, that dude died and raised from the dead and he said this was the word of God. He spoke about scripture as it was the authority. And so that's, that's, that's where I land on that thing. But what about you? And here's, here's kind of my... My hope for all of us, here, here's what I want to leave you with. I don't know if you noticed this at the beginning when that picture of Avenza Maps came up, but that company has a slogan, a little tagline, and it's this, navigate with confidence. And I would hope that every single one of us, when it comes to the Bible, would do this, that we would navigate with confidence, that we would, we would be sure that, yes, this collection of writings is something I can trust. 
that yes, this is reliable, that, that yes, this actually is from God. He has worked, men have done their job. All of this is a trustworthy collection of writings that we can look at. And the next time that we read the Bible ourselves or the next time that we hear a message with Bible verses, man, I hope our confidence in what the Bible says would be stronger than it's ever have been before. I love what the Gideons put in the front of their Bible. The Gideons are an organization that is probably number one in printed Bible distribution in the world. And they just have at the very front of their their Bibles, they hand out just a couple paragraphs of text. This is not scripture. This is just their view of it, but I think it's so good for us. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. And here's my hope again, as I said at the beginning. In light of all the information, in light of all the evidence, in light of all the manuscripts, in light of how the Bible was put together, I would hope that every single one of us would have more trust in what it says. And not just trust in what it says, but when we read the instructions, that we would read them as if coming straight from God himself, and we would apply them to our lives. I hope that every single one of us would use and even use even more. This is a map for our lives to guide us in our relationship with God. Let's pray before we head out. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you forever and ever that you have preserved for us such an incredible collection of texts. I don't know how you did it. I'm not even going to try to imagine, but Father, I believe that this is your heart written down for us to know you better. Thank you for the ways in which you have worked through people over thousands of years to preserve this so that we could learn and grow in our relationship with you. Father, thank you for the evidence we have today that we can, that we can be trusting that what you say is what you say and it is good for us. Father, for every single one of us here, everybody watching online, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would draw us closer to you as we read about your son, as we read instructions from Paul, as, as we look to the Bible. 
God, may it be a tool that you use to draw us closer and closer to you all the time. Thank you for such an incredible gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.